to thank each of you for being with us today and, and sharing your insight. I know that uh, we at Beckers are really grateful for you, but I know everyone who will be tuning in um, from the 17th through the 19th, and even after that, as, as it goes on demand, um, everyone's really grateful for you and all your insight and, and sharing. So I just wanted to give you a quick thank you and um, a good luck from me. And now, Laura, I'm going to pass it on over to you. Thank you. Test one, two. Hello, and welcome to the Becker's Spine, Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven Virtual Event. My name is Laura Deirda, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Becker's ASC Review and Becker's Spine Review. It's a pleasure to have you all here today, and I'm really excited to introduce our next panel. Um, it's titled ASC's Orthopedics and Spine, the next five years. And we have four fantastic leaders here to speak on the panel today. Um, I'd love to have them first introduce themselves and then we'll jump into our questions. Uh, Dr. Wilms, let's start with you. Could you talk a little bit about your background and a description of where your practice is today? Sure, Laura, thank you. So Richard Wilms is my name and I'm in the Puget Sound region of Seattle. I have a surgery center and neurosurgical practice uh, for many years and pioneered outpatient spine surgery in the region. Uh, we have um, had issues related to COVID-19 as the epicenter. So right from an early time, we were pretty much closed down for uh, elective cases for quite a while until really just in the last two weeks, we were able to do only uh, critical cases, urgent and emergent. We had to specify that. And the good news is that even though uh, the hospital uh, was able to do urgent and emergent, we were more able to do it in an outpatient arena and patients were happier to go to an outpatient center rather than to a center where COVID cases were coming in. So we did close down somewhat um, in the sense of not any elective cases and office cases um, for clinic visits and such were down substantially, but we were able to do telehealth immediately. So we were able to keep up uh, good communication with patients, some that absolutely had to come in and the rest with telehealth. Great, thank you. And Dr. Mendelbaum, could you tell us a little bit about your background? And where your practice is at? Yes. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm I'm here from Santa Monica, California, and I'm an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine. I'm a co-director of the Cedars Sinai Curl and Job Institute here in Southern California, and this is like for everybody. It's been a very interesting time as we've navigated through the coronavirus problems, if you will. Uh, we here, uh, like Richard spoke about, uh, have been, we weren't shut down, but we were closed for other than urgencies and emergencies. We then went through what we call from phase one to phase two, phase two A, B, and C. We started May 4th, and we have been escalating uh, in our surgery center uh, to the point we're about 60 to 70 percent where we are today. Uh, we also in our clinic are about 60 to 80 percent. Uh, limited by some of the COVID usual practices of screening and social distancing in the clinic. 
Uh, and at the moment, uh, we're continuing to elevate right into what we call phase three at this point in time, which really starts next week. So that's where we are. We continue to adapt. Uh, we continue to be nimble and we continue to navigate in our clinic and our surgery center environments going forward. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dr. Mendelbaum. Um, Dr. Momi, we'd love to hear from you next. Sure, hi. Uh, again, thank you as well uh, for having me on. Um, to echo what uh, Dr. Wallens and Dr. Mandelbaum said, it, we've had the similar uh, experience here in the South Jersey area. We're just outside of Philadelphia. So we were in a pretty uh, hot area for COVID-19 as well. We have not been able to do elective surgeries in the hospital since probably early March and, uh, or mid-March. Uh, our surgery center has been open. Uh, we are not hospital owned as far as our surgery center is concerned. We don't have a management company. So we're in a kind of a unique situation where most of the surgery centers in our area uh, completely shut down because they're hospital owned. All the PPE went to the hospital. We were still able to procure those uh, items. We were still able to continue doing our procedures. And we actually contacted the Department of Health and asked them, is it okay if we continue doing this? Because Quite honestly, many of our patients were not urgent or emergent, even as far as pain management is concerned, but they had significant pain and they were starting to go to the emergency room and that's not good for them or for the public at large. So it, was a, it, was a, it turned out to be pretty vital that we kept them out of the emergency rooms and we had other docs come to us because we were the only surgery center open able to do these procedures. Uh, as far as surgeries are concerned, um, well, we, our practice is uh, spine surgery and pain management, EMGs. We pretty much only do spine-related uh, care. Our surgeries have gone down 90% in terms of elective cases. Uh, just this week, we are now allowed to start doing elective cases again. Uh, so the hospital has just opened up in a limited fashion. So we have a large backlog that needs to get done. And I'm sure uh, the other docs would agree uh, we'll be busy for the next six months just trying to catch up. Um, but that's uh, our situation. Oh, one last thing. I do also want to stress uh, uh, their experience as ours as well in terms of telehealth. It's been a very, very wonderful thing to allow us to continue taking care of our patients without exposing them to any undue harm. Thank you. That's fascinating. Thank you, Dr. Momi. And Jacob, we'd love to hear from you now as well before we jump into the questions. Yeah, hey, uh, Jacob Rodman. I'm the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Raleigh Neurosurgical Clinic, and uh, we're obviously in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, much like many of your stories, um, similar here, we had a pretty high, uh, second highest in North Carolina um, area of COVID outbreak. Uh, we cover a level one trauma center here locally, so thankfully, um, good or bad, the doors stayed open to the center. We are able to still do some cases. Um, but about 85% of our revenue is based off of elective procedures, and obviously those went to zero. Um, we, uh, we did not do any telehealth prior to this, and uh, fortunately, we're able to get that up and running pretty quickly. And I'd say about 25% of our daily visits now are, are done via telehealth. Um, our local surgery centers, um, we're in the process of opening one uh, right now on our own, which, was, uh, which is owned by us. And interesting time to do that. Um, but we have two others that we're affiliated with and work in and, and one was shut down and one stayed open. Um, so we had an alternative place to take patients that were, were time sensitive, but keep them out of the hospital. Um, so 
that's where we are. We're, we're getting back on the right track. We're probably about 60 to 65% of uh, pre-COVID numbers right now. And uh, we've been doing elective surgeries for probably about three weeks now. And uh, every, every week we're seeing those numbers tick up. So uh, to, to echo Dr. Maloney, I, I, I suspect the next several months through the end of the year are going to be very busy. Absolutely. It's great to know where everybody's coming from and starting from. Well, the first question I have is for Dr. Wones. What are the short and long-term effects of the pandemic on your practice? What are you projecting um, currently? Could you unmute yourself, please? <laughs> there. There you go. Um, so short term, we're, we're in the short term phase now where we're seeing the diminished number of clinic visits, diminished number of surgeries, and that's gonna last for quite a while. Um, my prediction is that we won't be up to the usual numbers probably till third quarter or maybe even fourth quarter 2020. And that's if there's no resurgence and uh, additional spike of the virus. With the rioting, um, we're wondering whether there's gonna be a spike in, in COVID cases because of the vast numbers of people together in close quarters without masks. And um, we're, we're concerned about that. And Seattle had quite a lot of race riots and. Um, looting, and we're, we're very worried about that. But if things go okay from that point of view, then we'll just ramp up slowly. One thing that's exogenous to all of that is the fear of the patients that is expressed, particularly older patients who don't want to go near a hospital no matter what, even if we say it's safe, even if they're tested, they're worried about what's going on in the hospital environment. And we're hearing quite a bit that they would rather wait this out, get their fusion or their stenosis surgery done in the fall when they know things are safer. So that's going to be a rate limiting factor uh, in terms of getting us back to normal levels. So long-term effect is, is I think like we've all already stated telehealth. We've been talking about telehealth theoretically, for, for a couple of years, and now we're thrust into it overnight, and it's great. Patients love it, the doctors love it, the admin people love it. It's very efficient, it's very satisfying to all the parties, and I think using that and propelling that modality of interaction with patients going forward is gonna be a way of reaching new populations of patients, new areas that presently don't have spine surgeon coverage that we just couldn't tap into otherwise. So I think eventually telehealth will increase the volumes of patients coming to most practices using telehealth. So I think that's you know the silver lining in the cloud here that uh, we're gonna all be busier even than expected once things uh, change from the point of view of patient fear, uh, restrictions on access, and then the advantage of, of telehealth. The other thing that's gonna change long-term is I think everybody has experienced the benefits of, of having an ASC that does have an ASC. So those people will be even more enamored of their surgery center and getting their patients into their surgery center. Patients will wanna 
use ASCs even more so than previously. Those without ASCs for spine surgery will want to develop one. So I think, again, another silver lining, maybe you'll call it a platinum lining or something, it's going to be really positive for the development of outpatient spine surgery. Absolutely. The, those are all great points. And Dr. Mendelbaum, do you have anything to add there? Are there other things that you're thinking about in your practice in terms of short and long-term effects from the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I think that uh, Richard did mention is the fact that we also have a population that is not very active. We don't have youth sports. We don't have college sports, high school sports, pro sports. We're a big sports institute. And I think this is creating also a, a shortfall in demand in many orthopedic practices around the country and world. It's not just even a, a state or national issue. I speak to my colleagues around the world and they too are, are sharing the same experiences. Yes, we have a backlog right now, but we can see over the other side, uh, we're not seeing a lot of new patients with uh, football or soccer or basketball injuries simply because they're not doing any of that. Uh, Southern California, we have a lot of surfers. We have some surfing injuries now. So we're still seeing that. We also didn't see the ski injuries. So I think one thing we're going to see, which is a shortfall in sports injuries over the next six months, uh, ultimately, it'll change back, but for the next six months, while we're, we're practicing social distancing and we're trying to figure out the return to play strategies, we are going to have these shortfalls. That's a great point and, and so interesting to think about, you know, some of the different ways that um, or, or reasons why people are seeking orthopedic treatment. Um, Dr. Momi, I'd love to hear from you now. Um, how long do you think or anticipate that it will take for you to bring your practice up to full volume? I know Dr. Wones touched on that. Um, you know, are you seeing a similar year plus um, in, in order to, to get there? Or um, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, uh, can you hear me properly? Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, right now, uh, our new patient volume, which is what we really like to go by, uh, is about 80% of what it was pre-COVID. So there's still pretty robust uh, new patient uh, intake in our practice. But uh, I would agree, I think it would take more than uh, six months from now and for exactly the same reasons. It's amazing how we're all far apart from each other, but we all seem to have the same experience. Human nature is the same everywhere. Uh, people are afraid of going into the hospital. They do express some fear going even into the surgery center. Uh, I have to let them know that we, you know, we don't let anybody even with a low grade fever in there and that includes me. I get screened before I walk in the door. They take my temperature. Uh, so that gives them some measure of comfort but they really don't want to do anything. And quite honestly, to echo Dr. Mendelbaum, they don't have the pain they had before. They're not weekend warriors right now. They're not uh, working in a laboring job. So they can deal with their back problems as they are right now, from my perspective as a spine surgeon. Um, my only, uh, so uh, to, to answer your question, I would say it would take a good six months, again, assuming there's no big resurgence in COVID-19. Uh, but I would say uh, two points. One is I don't know how long uh, telehealth will be viable. And the only reason is uh, insurance companies we all know how they work. They, they often don't do what you think is sensible. So they may clamp down on telehealth and may want us to go back to seeing patients in the office. 
Uh, I think though that will be met with a lot of uh, friction from the patients. Uh, they will object to that as well as us. So long-term, I think it is something that will stay to the volume that we have it now, I don't think so. Uh, and finally, the insurance companies really do love uh, the surgeries being done in the surgery center. I don't know about Dr. Wong's experience. I didn't, we didn't get into that, but we've been doing fusions in our surgery center and sending patients to rehab directly for about 10 years now. So the workers comp in the area are very happy with that and they steer cases to us because of that. So I think this is only going to accelerate that. So uh, long-term, I think the surgery centers are going to do very well because of all these reasons. Absolutely. That's a great point. And especially when looking at telehealth, you see the um, insurance companies and payers as more of the roadblock than actually patients, you know, wanting to go back to the way things were, sounds like. Yep. Got it. Okay. And, and Jacob, at Raleigh uh, Neurological Clinic, you know, how are you looking at resuming business as more normal? What kind of changes do you see being changed to your strategic plan? Um, how are you thinking about the future? Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting exercise over the last uh, couple months. Um, you know, we've we've obviously been working on our short-term goals and how do we survive in the interim as a private practice, but also not losing sight of our long-term goals. You know, we still had our three, five, ten-year plans, um, and we've kind of talked a lot. Our practice has been here since 1954, and uh, we said, you know, COVID is not going to be the end of it, even though there are times that it got pretty, we, we were worried about, you know, the next payroll, the next cycle. And there's certainly been more programs and more money available for healthcare and for a physician and physician practices than I think there ever has been, um, especially in light of the, the financial crisis that we're in. Uh, having been through this in 08, there was not a lot of support at all for physicians or healthcare workers. Um, but, you know, we've, we've slowly brought back staff. We've slowly opened back up for patients. Uh, we never fully closed. Uh, we have a pain practice as well. And ironically, we actually saw an uptick in our pain procedures during this time. And, and our guess is, uh, I'm anxious to hear what others have to say, but our guess is, is that patients that needed surgery couldn't get it and they were hurting. So they were fine coming into the office, have an injection, have a procedure. Um, and the other, the other interesting point of all this is we've seen a lot of patients who will go to their primary care doctor or to an urgent care. They'll be referred to us for surgical evaluation. They'll be told they need surgery or intervention and they won't do it. You know, they'll say, call me in three months or call me in four months. So they'll go all the way up to the step of, I need, I need something I'm hurting, but, uh, to the other's point, they don't want to go in the hospital and we've kind of steered, been able to steer quite a few patients to the ASC. Um, using the same criteria, you know, we're, we're going to test everybody. We're going to make sure there's no fevers. Even the providers get tested when they come in. And, uh, but I, I, it's, it's been an interesting exercise, and I think it's brought a lot of transparency to our organization. Um, I think it's opened the eyes of especially some of our younger surgeons um, into kind of the, the backdrop of what it is to run, run a business and run a, a busy neuro, neurosurgical and pain practice. Um, and that's actually been good. I think there's going to be a lot of good coming out of this. Our board does a weekly call um, every, every Monday at five o'clock, um, something we did not do pre-COVID. Um, and, and that's probably something we will continue even after this. It's been great for transparency, been great for communication. So, um, but we're, we're still, still keeping our eye on the long-term goals and we've still been fighting for the surgery center and going through those appeals process and um, and, and try not to lose sight of that in the, in the middle of all this, even though it's easy to focus on the short term most days. 
Absolutely. So it's good that you're still able to move forward that, with that process, even if it's delayed to some degree, um, as it would ha not have been before the pandemic, it seems. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and, and now, Dr. Mandelbaum, I had a question for you, and then I'll have the same question for Dr. Wilms and, and Jacob as well. But when you're looking at payers, um, is there anything recently that you've heard from payer willingness about being able to reimburse for orthopedic procedures, or especially given the current environment, um, you know, with people wanting to be more in the outpatient setting, with hospitals not necessarily being the best place for some procedures. Um, what is your feeling about how payers are um, reacting to the current environment and, and really uh, making any changes, if any at all, in the orthopedic space? Well, Laura, it's an interesting question. You know, after 100,000 deaths and now 40 million people unemployed, uh, that the insurance companies still are unwavering in their desire to continue to be as aggressive as they can for profits. 2019, $35.7 billion profit in and of itself. Uh, they followed this approach of being unwilling to reimburse at times with a series of distractions. And even at this time, they are probably the biggest beneficiaries of COVID. And why? As all the members of this uh, council really talked about, people are staying home for the most part, but they're paying premiums. So the profits are gonna be off the chart this year, and they continue to have their distractions of pushing for no surgery. As we've seen, the valueless administrative hassles, the pre-authorization denials that we've seen, the decoding algorithms, threatening retrospective reviews that have been part of all that we go through. And it's loud and clear. I just can't believe that in the last six weeks that these insurance companies actually have stepped up what they're doing rather than being more sensitive and having cooler heads and warmer hearts, none of which I'm seeing. Interesting. So it's even accelerated some of the, um, you know, negative trends that you would have seen in the past. For, well, for it, procedures. I, I personally think they've been emboldened uh, in 2019. Again, this $35.7 billion profit. And again, a lot of that has to do with uh, the Medicare Advantage. But these other business practices have allowed them to see those bonuses. And they are sharks in the water. They're just going for as much as they can. And the greediness is so evident. And just this last week, I just shake my head. So many times we, I come off the phone and I have these peer-to-peers that have stepped up. And again, oh, I don't know about this. We don't really authorize that. Denials, denials, decoding algorithms, and threatening retrospective reviews are upon us. And again, reimbursement levels are being pushed at lowest of levels. These distractions are just amazing, and they, they, they take advantage, but I think it's very parallel with what's happening in the national and federal environment. I, I really say when the, it's the fox taking the hen coop when no one's watching, and they are the foxes taking all the hens. Absolutely. Dr. Wallens, you know, do you have any other thoughts in terms of um, your interactions with payers and, you know, what you might expect over the next several years um, in terms of any trends in this regard? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, optimistic that, um, like Dr. Momin was mentioning, doing fusions outpatient, 
that you know, we've also done, but we don't have all the payers on board. And now that they're seeing us move those cases to the surgery center, they're, they're approving them. And so I'm hopeful that that will now be a contractual thing going forward. We'll have more contracts for more types of fusions and be able to do more high acuity patients as an outpatient when prior to the pandemic and the lockdown, some of those cases just by codes were forced to be done in a hospital. And now we're showing them that we can do them outpatient successfully and they're saving a ton of money. So I'm, I'm optimistic that that's gonna open up the doors to even more uh, fusions for us and other centers that might've had some, some issues with insurance companies. They'll see the 60 to 70% cost savings and the successful outcomes and the happy patients. And they'll say, well, maybe we won't deny these cases. We'll just say you have to do them as an outpatient if you want an approval. So I, I'm the glasses uh, kind of half full sort of guy. Um, I'm optimistic that this is actually going to help our mission. Got it. And then Jacob, from your perspective, I know in uh, you know North Carolina, some of the things that you've been doing are probably a little bit different, um, getting the center off the ground and that kind of thing. But is there um, what kind of considerations do you have with payers, and where do you think that's headed? Um, what plans are you making? Yeah, it, we we actually saw in North Carolina, um, some of the payers came out and said, hey, we're going to pay, you know, claims within seven days um, when, when COVID hit. And uh, I think a lot of people were like, no way. Um, and, and they did. And uh, North Carolina is a prompt pay state. So technically, commercial payers have to pay within 30 days of a clean claim. Um, but a lot of them would, would take longer and pay the, the nominal interest. Um, so they did come out and they, they, they backed up what they said they were going to do. But on the flip side, we've also seen an increase in patients that come in, have insurance, we get an authorization, um, and, and the insurance companies are not telling us they're in a, in a grace period um, due to COVID because I think they've extended it to 60 or 90 days now. Um, and then come, come, we'll do the case, do the, do the procedure, find out later the, the insurance plan was terminated uh, retroactively. So um i don't know the answers to those questions um you know I, we've we've been talking about doing bundles uh we entered into a medicare bundle starting in january of this year uh, i know medicare came out and said if if anybody was in a bundle um they're going to look at you know because obviously if somebody had a spine fusion and then later on got diagnosed with covid and became very ill i think they're kind of reevaluating how they handle the bundles on the medicare side um but I, I'm kind of a glass half full type guy too. Um, I, I think it's going to create a unique opportunity for us to work closely with the payers and hopefully come up with some stuff that may work for both sides. Uh, I do agree. You know, they've been collecting a lot of premiums. I mean, we've, we've been paying our premium every month for our employees and I know a lot of them are sitting at home and not doing anything. So the, these few months are going to be very profitable uh, for the insurance companies. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next six to 12 months. Got it. Thank you for going through that with us. And then Dr. Momi, kind of tagging along to on this theme of payers, do you have any thoughts on um, what you're expecting or preparing for? Do you think there will be more opportunities for value-based contracts in the future due to the pandemic? Um, or, or do you foresee payers being kind of the, you know, staying the same um, and not having to change based on this? Well, uh, it's interesting, uh, Jacob was talking about the, the immediate payments when COVID hit. Uh, Jacob, we had the same experience. 
as soon as COVID hit and we had to lay off our staff and uh, stop our surgeries, we were really worried about, uh, obviously about expenses, payroll, uh, just keeping the lights on. And much to our surprise, within three to four days, all the insurance companies paid every claim that we had sent them uh, without delay. And we don't know why they did that, uh, but it was nice to see and that really, really helped us a lot. So that, that was, that was that was nice to see and surprising. And um, I will echo the other two gentlemen. I am a glass half full kind of guy as well. And we have been doing spinal fusions in our, in our uh, surgery center. We've seen patients uh, have more interest in doing that. Uh, they're talking to their insurance companies about allowing them to do that. Uh, we haven't had any discussions with the insurance companies directly. A lot of them have laid off a lot of staff as well. Uh, it's even harder than ever to get a hold of anybody. And this is not on their list of priorities right now to uh, discuss with providers how to, how to provide care. Not that it ever was, but I think uh, right now it's dropped even lower. So uh, I, I would kind of agree that it's an opportunity for surgery centers. Got it, thank you. Now, Jacob, I have another question for you. Um, what do you think is the smartest thing that physician groups should focus their strategy on today to make sure that they're thriving in the years to come? That's a loaded question. Um, I, I think having an ASC as part of your group, I think is a no brainer. Um, uh, the ability to add value based healthcare to your organization. And we've determined that the, the only way we can truly do that is to have as much control over our patient's experience as possible, uh, start to finish. And that includes an ASC, uh, includes therapy, includes all the steps necessary. Um, and I think, again, what I, what I mentioned earlier, the communication and the transparency we've had as an organization through this time period, even with our employees. I mean, we've been maybe too open at times with our employees about where we are and what we're doing. But I think they've appreciated um, the, that we've involved them in decisions we've made. And when we had to reduce hours or furlough people, you know, we, we engaged with our employees in those conversations and they appreciated it. Um, but I, I think I think an ASC is probably, I'd rank that as, as the top of the list. Got it. And Dr. Wolins, could you chime in here as well? What do you think from your perspective that will be essential for physician strategies, especially for smaller groups and organizations going forward? So I think the concept of the small group has to change um, to be really successful going forward. The um, lion's share of spine surgery is still done in a hospital setting because um, most spine surgeons are employed by hospitals, the majority, I should say. And I, I'm not so sure that there's significant levels of happiness and um, sustainability to that arrangement so that small groups who have successful surgery centers should actively market uh, amongst their colleagues to jump ship get out of the employment situation in hospitals unless they have a viable ambulatory surgery practice within the hospital environment, but most don't. Most ASCs for spine surgery are freestanding, not part of a hospital system. And the cost difference, if it's hospital-owned HOPD versus freestanding is significant. So I think the aggressive thing to do to really promote the small group turning into a big group is to talk to your colleagues, bring them into your surgery center fold, get them to be partners in an outpatient 
practice outside of an employment situation with a big hospital system and build what I think is the momentum here to moving uh, a, a vast majority of spine cases out of the hospital inpatient environment to the outpatient environment at lower cost, higher satisfaction, and, and better satisfaction amongst the providers, which I'm a term I'm not going to use anymore after today, the doctors. Let's get rid of providers. Absolutely. Um, perfect. Thank you, Dr. Wones. And now before we wrap up our panel, I have one final question for all the panelists. I'll start with you, Dr. Mandelbaum. Um, what do you think, techno what technology do you think will be essential um, in the future? And where do you see orthopedics over the next five years? What do you think, you know, will really be um, the most important things that will come out of this? Well, I think firstly, and I think the other panelists really approaches the use of virtual medicine is gonna be a tool as we really confront and face the consumer is gonna be a very important part. We just had meetings today talking about now using virtual medicine on initial contact with patients. Uh, we use Epic. We're trying to get that information from the patient virtually, get the patient to come in after we schedule their x-ray and MRI, kind of short circuit those things. When you couple virtual medicine to the use of robots and improving arthroplasty, uh, when you look at some of the other issues and orthobiologics, which we haven't really spoken about and new technologies going forward, when you couple all of these things together, I think it's a real opportunity for us to evolve our field and to improve outcomes as we go forward. The use of the ASC, the use of robots in ASCs, doing spinal surgery with microscopes, uh, the use of orthobiologics is really the next step innovations that we go forward. So I think it's an exciting future. I too am the optimist. And uh, I look forward to our future. We've got a lot of innovations. I bet on all of us, this group here and others, uh, to figure it out, to be innovative, uh, to be entrepreneurs, and take the best care of patients going forward. That's fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Mandelbaum. Um, Dr. Momi, briefly, do you have anything else to add in there? Well, I, I would agree with all that. You pretty much took away all the points uh, that I was gonna say, so I don't have to say too much. The only thing I would add to the ASC, the robotics, the telehealth uh, is data. Uh, you know, we keep hearing about data, but Data is, it's like oil, it's valuable, but not the way it is out of the ground. You have to refine it, you have to, uh, there's different products that come out of it. They're important for different industries and different people and data is the same way. Uh, raw data is not very useful, but we are learning how to sift through it and identify very important aspects of it that are good for total joints, for spine. And once we get that data in place, we'll really be able to make a difference on population health and predicting uh, who need surgery and also really be able to demonstrate outcomes and as we've all talked about challenge the insurance companies on their uh, arbitrary uh, uh, whimsical denials that they often have. Absolutely. Jacob, any other thoughts? It, it's hard to follow up both of those comments. I mean, they're said perfectly, uh, but I, I think just the exciting, the innovation that's going to happen uh, in the next five years is going to be remarkable. So I'm excited to see it happen. 
Fantastic. And Dr. Bones, any other thoughts on um, spine surgery and orthopedics five years from now? What are we, what are we looking at? Yes, I, I agree with my, my esteemed colleagues. Uh, my spin on the technology piece is that sometimes we have all the technology in the hospital and it's hard to get because of capital expenditures, the same technology in a surgery center. So that's got to change. And we need a partnership with industry to help promote use of um, $1 million robots and O-arms and other uh, high cost technologies that are generally hospital-based to be able to be used in a surgery center. I use a robot in the hospital. I'm trying to get one in the surgery center, but to make a pencil, it's somewhat difficult. So I think if we wanna go the, the way we should be going, we need help from industry to make all the technology readily available in the outpatient arena. And then the payback will be there because the cases will be able to migrate fully over if we have all you know, the neuronavigation, the robotics, all the orthobiologics we need, et cetera, et cetera, outpatient. That's a great point. And thank you so much, Dr. Wellens, Dr. Mandelbaum, Jacob, Dr. Momi. It's been a great panel and a pleasure to speak with you all. I appreciate your time today and look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here.